Hello and welcome to the Weekly Brief brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we're honored to have as our guest, Professor Richard Lazarus from Harvard University. Richard Lazarus is the Howard J. and Catherine W. Abel Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School. He is with us today because I know he will not mind if I describe him as others have as the Dean of Environmental Law Professors and of Teaching and Implementing Environmental Litigation. He's been counsel in over 40 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing 14 of them. He was the executive director and reporter of the BP uh, oil spill uh, in the Gulf. And he has recently written a book, The Rule of Five, The Making of Climate Change in the Supreme Court, which is significant not only for what it talks about climate change, but for lawyers is significant because it takes us through the decisions that lawyers had to make in bringing this litigation and gives examples of how lawyers should deal with difficult courts and gives us the importance of great lawyering, no matter what the issue is, and of the importance of what for us are technical issues, but really determine outcome as in administrative law. And it is significant that Professor Lazarus has written this book because it brings to the wider public largely interested in climate change today so much of what lawyers do and how critical their decisions are. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Professor Lazarus. Delighted to be here, Howard. Thanks so much for the invitation. Tell me, what is it that led you to write this book, The Rule of Five, Making Climate Change in the Supreme Court? Well, I've actually always wanted to write a book like this. When I was in the Solicitor General office myself a long time ago, so we're talking late 1980s, and I was immersed on a day-to-day basis on just doing Supreme Court litigation, I I thought someone could write a really interesting book about Supreme Court advocacy, Supreme Court decision-making for a popular audience and really bring it to life. I always had that in the back of my head. Uh, And then when I left the Solicitor General's office in 1989, I became a full-time academic uh, at several law schools, Washington University, Georgetown, before that, Indiana, before landing at Harvard uh, a decade or so ago. Uh, I had my eye out to see if I could come up with a good case uh, to sort of finally write that book. It's hard when you're doing environmental law to find time to write history because it's kind of a luxury. There's so much happening at the moment. But in 2007, when the Supreme Court decided Massachusetts versus EPA, I thought to myself, aha, I've got the perfect case. Uh, Because it's a case which marries my two main interests. Uh, One is environmental law. uh, And the second is Supreme Court advocacy and Supreme Court decision-making. And I thought, I've got a great case to do it. Now I just need to find the time to do the necessary research and writing. And it was in 2015 that I finally freed myself up with some research leaves uh, to put together the time to really uh, research the book. But it wasn't until 2015 that I decided this is the book I'm going to write. But the idea was germinating uh, with me since 1988 or so. For me, your discussion in the book had a third element, not just environmental law and Supreme Court advocacy, but the difficulties lawyers face in bringing forward the law in front of what some would call difficult courts. I mean, I know it's not an exact analogy, but I was thinking of the litigation that Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP went through even before Brown in the old Fifth Circuit uh, that existed from Texas to Florida and how dealing constantly with courts that were thought to be difficult courts to argue in front of, where great lawyering made a difference. And that in Massachusetts versus EPA, in what you've written, it's clear that the decisions that lawyers made and great lawyering is what made the difference here, not just the substantive issue. Am am I misreading that? Not at all. And actually, that's part of what I thought was so exciting when I was doing Supreme Court litigation in the 1980s. And one thing I was hoping uh, I could capture in a book uh, and a story about a case. I'm delighted that you uh, saw that. And and that's because in the Supreme Court, it's all about framing. It's how you frame the case, beginning with the question presented, which literally appears just inside the cover uh, of the brief in the Supreme Court. The the framing is so important. And what was apparent to me is when you got a case in the Supreme Court, uh, you could frame the case one way and lose, frame it another way and win. Uh, It was all a question of looking at your court, thinking the way they think, which is the idea of the Solicitor General's Office, having experts 
who only watch the court, no matter what the, the legal issue happens to be, and try to think the way they do and come up with the right framing of it. Uh, and sometimes you look at the case, you go, well, actually, there's no way that I can win this case. And that's a really important decision for a lawyer to be able to make, a judgment. There's no way I can win it. So how can I lose it in a way which does the least damage? And what we call that in the Solicitor General's office was a soft landing. Uh, and quite often in the Supreme Court, you're not just trying to win the case, you're trying to lose it well. Uh, and that's all about strategy and how to frame the case and working with the court you have, not necessarily the court you wish you had. That goes back to one of Aristotle's first rules of persuasion, know your audience. Exactly. But lawyers don't agree all the time. I mean, what's interesting about this case is every decision made along the way from initially bringing it to how the appeal was handled, to seeking cert in the Supreme Court, to who and how it would be argued in the Supreme Court, every step along the way involved disagreement among counsel and difficult decisions that had to be made. So take us back through to the original decision by the Massachusetts Attorney General to file a case and, and what he was seeking. Well, if it's okay, and even take it before that, right? I mean, the, the origin of the case is back in the 1990s during the Clinton administration. And this guy named Joe Mendelson, uh, who filed the original petition with EPA that formed the basis of the Supreme Court case, Joe Mendelson decided to basically challenge the Clinton EPA for not doing anything on climate. And most everyone else in the environmental community wanted to stop him from doing it. I said, this pardon, is pardon, me pardon me for interrupting you, but you mentioned the original petition. What is it that he sought in the original petition? So Joe Mendelson in 1999 filed an administrative petition with EPA. Uh, and he asked EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from new motor vehicles. So he challenged the Clinton administration uh, by walking down, turning this petition in uh, to EPA. And most every national environmental group opposed him doing so. Uh, they Actually, some of them tried to stop him. Uh, they lobbied some of his fund, few funding uh, organizations because uh, they thought this is such a strategic uh, mistake to do it. By the time the case got in front of the Supreme Court, they were all on his side. And he sat at council table along with everybody else in the court. But from the get-go, uh, there was tremendous conflict and disagreement. And it wasn't conflict done in bad faith. And that was just the first one. It was in good faith. It's because, in fact, law is hard. Environmental law is hard. Litigation strategy is not always obvious. And this was climate change, an issue about which people felt very strongly. It was the most depressing issue uh, of our time. And, so the, reason, and the reason, again, if I, the reason that it was opposed initially is because people were fearful that the decisions that would come forth ultimately from the courts, especially the Supreme Court, would be to exclude regulation of greenhouse gases, that they were bringing a case that not only might be lost, but might result in a decision that was very harmful to dealing with climate change. Exactly right. And that's why after they brought the case against the EPA and the DC Circuit and they lost in a split opinion, but they lost two to one, uh, only one attorney out of the hundreds of attorneys uh, on the side of the states, the environmentalists seeking to compel EPA uh, to regulate greenhouse gas, gas emissions from new motor vehicles. Only one of those attorneys thought they should seek further review. Uh, everyone else thought it was a terrible tactical uh, mistake. They, but they, the one who thought it, but the one who thought it was the one who had the power to make the decision. <laughs> that's right. Because when it comes to the Supreme Court, there may be, in this case, there are about three dozen parties on the same side, any one of them can decide to file a cert petition from an adverse ruling from the DC circuit. So they did not have to be unanimity. They didn't get to vote on it. Uh, and Jim Milkey, uh, who was the counsel of record uh, for the case and also more importantly, the counsel for Massachusetts, for the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, he thought, uh, let's not surrender. Let's not wait for another case. I'm willing to roll the dice. Uh, and other parties on his same side in good faith felt it was a huge mistake because they risked uh, an adverse ruling, a ruling that could set them back tremendously. Uh, the feelings and emotions ran so high uh, about this that the president of the Natural Resource Defense Council, a highly celebrated and thought of person, called Jim Milkey's boss, the Massachusetts Attorney General, to lobby him to overrule the head of the Environmental Office and uh, Attorney General's office, and called Milkey himself and said, if you do this, the future of the environmental movement is on your head.
And also, we should mention, for those who don't do Supreme Court litigation, the designation of counsel of record on a case in the Supreme Court is a very significant designation. The court insists that one counsel be responsible for the litigation. That counsel makes the decision. The only person that could have ordered the counsel to not do it was a client. Presumably, if there'd been a battle within Massachusetts, that would have been interesting. But once he's designated as counsel of record and has the case, he has the power to decide and make the decision whether to file the cert petition. That's right. And, and Milky decided to file it. Now, once he decided to file, interestingly, uh, all the other people joined the petition. Uh, that was not because they thought it was a good idea. Um, they joined it because they wanted to help control it and what it said. Uh, and they also thought there's no way in the world the court's going to take this case anyway. Uh, so we really don't have that much to worry about, even though we think it's a it's a it's a risky venture. Uh, so they filed the petition uh, and then amazingly, the court granted review. We'll talk about why that may have involved an interesting internal projection within the court for the four votes necessary uh, to grant the cert petition. But let's take one step back before it gets to the Supreme Court. Uh, the EPA refuses to regulate greenhouse gases. Massachusetts then brings an action against, uh, against the EPA, uh, calling for it to regulate. And the EPA then enters the reasons for why it is choosing not to regulate greenhouse gases. It thinks, and maybe go there, it, it gives two reasons, basically, the EPA rejection of the petition in the court. Yeah, so the EPA denied uh, the petition. They did that in August uh, 2003, published in the Federal Register a few weeks later in September, and they offered two reasons for denying Joe Mendelson's petition. Uh, the first reason was they said, we don't have authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. The Clean Air Act does not include greenhouse gas emissions. They are not, as a matter of law, air pollutants within meaning of the statute. That was their first and most fundamental reason for denying it. Then they offered a backup reason. They said, even if we did have authority, we declined to exercise that authority at this time uh, because it's just not the right time uh, to do it. Uh, and the court here, in, sorry, the court, the agency, in this part of its petition denial, listed about five or six or seven or eight reasons uh, for why it thought that it was not the right time. And then of potential significance later on in the Supreme Court, they said, in light of these considerations, we deny the petition. So again, you're right, there were two grounds. One is we don't think the Clean Air Act covers greenhouse gases. And the second, even if it does, we don't think it's the right time to regulate them. And in light of all these considerations, we decide to deny the petition. And the reason that I think we're focusing on this is because though the headline to the public when the case came out was Supreme Court authorizes, however it interpreted, regulation of, of greenhouse gases by EPA, in fact, it was technical issues of administrative law and how the lawyers argued those technical issues of administrative law that were so decisive not just technical issues of standing, which we'll talk about, but technical issues of administrative law and the tactical decisions that were made. So these, the, the, the uh, DC Circuit uh, finally uh, essentially rejects uh, overruling the EPA two to one vote. The cert petition is filed. You've written there is some thought about why the cert petition was granted, what the, what the justices who voted the grant had thought the result might be. Yeah. Well, we'll never know for sure, although I have some inside information on that one. When the court granted cert review in the case, it was an enormous surprise because it was the first time the Supreme Court had granted review at the request of environmentalists over the federal government's opposition in an environmental case since 1971. So the, in, when they granted review in Massachusetts versus EPA in 2006, the last time they granted review at the request of environmental groups over the government's opposition in the environmental case was in 1971. That was in Sierra Club e. Morton. So it was, a, it was a big surprise. Now, it did make people worry that, all right, what does this mean? Because it takes four votes to grant review in the case, uh, but you never know who the four are. Uh, and some people were quite worried that the four who had granted voted grant review were actually those who wanted to give the environmental groups a loss uh, and not a win, uh, and actually rule against them uh, on the standing issue. Uh, I have to know because of the fact of uh, the interviews I did for the book, which included uh, three justices on the Supreme Court, only one who agreed to talk to me on the record uh, for the, about the case. 
But I learned from those justices much later on uh, that the reason they actually decided uh, to vote in favor of you was they thought uh, they could rule in favor of the Brian Willis. They thought they could secure, secure a majority for that. They thought they said to me, one justice said to me, if I hadn't thought that, I would never have voted in favor of review. So it now goes to the Supreme Court, and there's several issues. Again, talking about the lawyer's job here, aside from, from what the science says about greenhouse gases and climate change, the first issue is this is brought by the state of Massachusetts, and there's a very significant standing issue here that the court has to resolve first, isn't there? Yes, and there was an Article Three standing issue uh, involved in the case, uh, and this was like, the issue which had worried people so much. Because the court has a lot of conservative justices then and now, and they tend to be very hawkish in Article Three standing. Uh, and if the environmentalists and the states lost on the standing issue, and the court ruled that allegations of climate injury do not satisfy Article Three of the Constitution for standing purposes, that would have been game over for all climate uh, litigation in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, brought by the states and environmental groups. So they had a lot that they could lose on that issue. Uh, they didn't raise the issue at all in their cert petition. Uh, the Solicitor General, though, raised it in their brief in opposition. Uh, and the Supreme Court, everyone knew, would be very interested in, uh, particularly Justice Scalia. So that was a threshold issue, which we would have to overcome even before getting, of course, to the question of whether or not greenhouse gas air pollutants. Uh, but that, that issue was potentially the most important question in the case if they lost on it. And that's the issue that the four dissenters essentially largely focused on was the standing issue. That's, that's where the dissent came. That's right. The Chief Justice Roberts wrote the dissent on that issue. There was a little doubt that's what he would be doing. Uh, Article three standing issues is in his wheelhouse. It's what he cares about most of all. He's written one law review article since he graduated from law school. It was an Article three standing. He argued one of the main Article Three standing cases in the Supreme Court when he was Deputy Solicitor General, Lujan versus National Wildlife Federation, where Justice Scalia wrote the opinion for the court. Uh, one of his first opinions for the Supreme Court, once he got on, was on Article Three standing. So there's little doubt where he would be on the issue and how strongly he would feel about it. And talking so, about Justice so Robert, to add to that, just within the last 10 days of the first time in his time on the court, he was the sole dissenter. Uh, in an eight to one decision uh, on, uh, you know, on, on, on whether a certain category of damages provided standing. And he solely dissented uh, yeah. on, on the standing issue, an eight to one decision. So when you say he's interested in the technical issues of standing, I don't think that can be uh, overstated. So we deal first with a standing issue, but there are five votes finally. And tell us about the argument. What, what is the argument that you think persuaded the majority on the issue of standing. Well, the, the, what's fascinating about it is they had a, the, the environmental states had a tough issue trying to get over standing. They could win this one or lose this one. Everyone knew it was going to be five to four. But here's the challenge they had, which is quite fascinating to think about. On the, on the side of the petitioners, which were basically a dozen states uh, and about two dozen environmental organizations, uh, on that side, they had tried to make the strategic decision whether to argue that states as sovereigns have special standing in bringing cases in the federal court. Uh, and they actually did not make that argument in the Supreme Court in the first instance. Uh, why? Probably because they were filing one joint brief. Uh, all of them were filing a brief together. Uh, and the environmental groups weren't necessarily wanting to welcome a decision which said the states have heightened standing and we don't. So they barely mention that uh, in their arguments, uh, in their written briefs in the case. There was only a slight hint about that possibility. But before the United States Supreme Court, when they stood up there, uh, Justice Kennedy asked a question. Uh, and that question made everyone sit up because they knew this is Justice Kennedy. He's likely to decisive vote. And what Justice Kennedy said was, is there any rule, any decision of this court? If so, what's the best decision? in support of the notion that states have special rights to standing uh, on behalf of their citizens. Well, in response, Jim Milkey, who was a terrific attorney and was pairing beautifully all the different standing uh, arguments being launched at him and questions by Justice Scalia, was a bit flummoxed by this one because you know he had different clients. They was simultaneously representing standing up there. Some who liked that argument, 
others who didn't. So what he did was repeat what they had in the brief, which was you know, a fairly weak effort. And Justice Kennedy responded by saying, well, I would have thought your best decision in support of the idea of states having special rights to standing is Georgia v. Tennessee Copper. Which no one had focused on. No one had focused. This was a decision of the Supreme Court in like 1909, 1910 or so. There are about 40 briefs filed in this case, four against standing. No one, no one had cited Georgia v. Tennessee Copper in any of those cases, in any of those briefs, excuse me. Jim Milkey told me later that when Kennedy said that, his feeling was, I don't really remember what that case is about. But if it's good enough for Justice Kennedy, it's, it's good enough for me. me. <laughs> and he embraced it. But everyone in the audience, and I was there at the time, we all knew the significance of that moment. It meant that the petitioners, Massachusetts and other petitioners, were not going to lose on Article 3 because Justice Kennedy had done his own work. He had done his own homework on this. And he was the decisive vote. He had found the case which he thought made the difference. And ultimately, the majority decision is written by Justice Stevens, whom you describe as an 80-year-old Jedi warrior in terms of how he handled this. But Justice Kennedy does write a concurrence. And what finally does this... Justice Kennedy doesn't write a concurrence. Excuse me. But he he joins the majority opinion. He joins the majority. What happened, if you read Stevens' opinion, it cites repeatedly Georgia v. Tennessee Copper. Uh, So Stevens knew exactly what he was doing. And that was, he was going to, if it was good enough for Justice Kennedy, it was good enough for the majority of the Supreme Court. And were some of the petitioners disappointed by how the court handled the standing issue, or did it finally turn out okay? Well, I, I, I think at the time when the decision came down, they had dodged the bullet. They hadn't lost on standing. They won, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, on every single issue. They were ecstatic. They were worried, though, about the negative implication of the fact the court relied on the states is having a special solicitude here. They're worried about what it might mean for future cases. Uh, and it has led to some losses in future cases, but it's not one that's been devastating at all. Uh, and they've been working it out over time. But they were disappointed. But at the moment, not at all. They'd won a huge case. And having then having dealt with the standing issue, then the court, in thinking about this and in the argument, turns to the administrative law issues. And they become central to the argument at this yeah. point because we're talking about the EPA justifications uh, for, for for not doing this, and uh, especially the two justifications. The first uh, was that they didn't think they had authority, but the second became critical. The reasons they gave for saying they weren't exercising it, even if they did have authority. Yeah, and there was a, a really telling moment in oral argument on this. So Jim Milkey from Massachusetts is up there, and he's just happy to answer question after question by Justice Scalia. I mean, for like 23 questions on standing, one after the other. Uh, and he's only got a total of 30 minutes or so. And after uh, 20 minutes, he realized, I'm still on standing, right? I have, Scalia will not let me get to the next question, which is whether or not greenhouse gas emissions are air pollutants or not. And so he says, turning to the merits quickly, as soon as he says that, to indicate to the court, I'd like to pivot to the merits, the chief justice interrupts him and says, moving from your merits argument uh, to the other question. So he, he pivots Milky away from what is actually his strongest possible argument of the, of the three, standing, uh, authority, and administrative discretion. The chief justice doesn't let him go and talk about the merits, whether greenhouse gas emissions or air pollutants. He pivots him directly to the administrative law question. And that is whether EPA had authority, the discretion to decide not to decide the issue at all. And the chief knows that that's where Milky and the Massachusetts petitioners, that's where they're weakest. Uh, and so he pivots them uh, from a strong argument to weak argument. Uh, it's you know, a really telling moment. One has to remember there's advocacy going on on both sides during the Supreme Court argument. The, the nominal advocate in front of the lectern is trying to get the justice to think about the case their, his or her way. But the justices are actually trying to lobby and influence their colleagues on the bench and get them to think about the case at their way. And what Chief Justice Roberts there does is he takes Milky away from the question he's strong on, whether greenhouse gas emissions are air pollutants, to one he's weak on, uh, which is a pure question of administrative law, background question of administrative law. And that is, when does an agency have discretion to decide when to decide things and decide not to decide things? 
Uh, and that was a smart move by the chief. And so we're at a critical point in the argument. We're going to focus now on how the lawyers dealt with it and how critical great lawyering is. But before we do that, let's take a break. You know, those of you listening to this podcast can get one hour of MCLE credit uh, through the Daily Journal. Let's take a break so you can hear how you can get that MCLA credit. And then we'll return and focus on the central issue of great lawyering and decisions lawyers have to make. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. On behalf of the Daily Journal, the Weekly Brief congratulates the mediators and arbitrators featured in the 2021 resolution issue. Read about the skilled dispute resolution professionals and columns from experts explaining new challenges and solutions in the field. Follow the link in the description of this episode or go to dailyjournal.com slash special underscore reports. We're now back from our break. We're at the critical point in the argument. The Chief Justice has grabbed control and he asks counsel for petitioners, uh, Attorney General Milkey, uh, why doesn't essentially, why doesn't, why it wasn't the EPA correct in uh, saying it, that it had discretion to not hear this petition uh, and focuses on the administrative law issues. How does Milkey respond to that? How does he deal with it? Well, first, if it's okay, let me tell you what the chief did. It's classic Chief Justice Roberts. It's what he does in every case in environmental cases. Uh, and that is what he said to Milkey, he said, all right, when did they abuse their discretion uh, in deciding not to decide? Where in the statute does it say they have to decide this issue by a certain day? Did they abuse it on day one after the statute was passed? On day two, day three, day four? What do you see in the statutory language? Where is it that they abuse their discretion in saying we're not deciding it now? And the reason uh, that question, I was again, focus important because we're not dealing with a case where the EPA has made an administrative decision that a petitioner is seeking to override. We're in a case where the petitioner has said, this is a decision you have to make, and the EPA hasn't made the decision. So yeah. it's a unique kind of circumstance in terms of, of the discretion of the agency. Yeah, and the fact is, the chief is correct. Um, the agencies, as a matter of background uh, principles of administrative law, have enormous discretion to decide when they're gonna decide things. Um, because you know, agencies have all kinds of responsibilities. EPA has enormous responsibilities under many statutes. And who's to say which one they have to decide when? And when Congress wants to interfere with the EPA's discretion, as they sometimes do, they write in the law. There are plenty of provisions of the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, other things, where someone is given the right to petition the agency. The agency has to respond with a certain amount of time. Uh, they have to make determination with a certain amount of time. There is no such provision with the relevant part of the Clean Air Act at issue in Massachusetts versus EPA. So EPA could well have said, in this case, we're deciding not to decide because we're busy. We're deciding not to decide because we have a whole lot of other things we need to do first. There are a whole series of very well-settled reasons why an agency can say, we're deciding not to decide because we're doing other things first, and no court would ever second-guess them and their ability to do that. So Milky had a problem in answering the Chief Justice's question, and here's how he chose to answer. What he said was, you're right, Your Honor. Uh, an agency has enormous amount of discretion to decide not to decide things. And many of those reasons are ones which we can't second guess. But here, what they did was they said that one of the reasons why they weren't deciding this issue was they thought that Congress had, had created the wrong framework for regulating these kinds of emissions under the Clean Air Act. They didn't like the Clean Air Act. They didn't like the fact the Clean Air Act called for regulations in certain instances. And he said, look, there are many legitimate reasons why an agency can decide not to decide, but that was an illegitimate one. Uh, and since that was illegitimate, we think you have to send it back to EPA and have them give legitimate reasons for doing so. Uh, what, what's fascinating about this, right, is that's a very, very narrow argument for a win, because it's acknowledging that EPA could go back, do the same thing it did the first time, right? But does this time just give other reasons and you couldn't force them to do it. 
So why did Nilke make such a small ask, which ultimately you could argue wasn't asking for very much for a simple reason. He wanted to win the case. And the fact is they were weak on that third issue as a matter of administrative law um, principles. So what he identified and his whole team identified, it just wasn't just Jim Milkey by himself. There was a whole team. He was their advocate who stood up in front of the court. Uh, the brief writer, Lisa Heinzlein, also played a significant role in this as well. But they had determined that this was the only way they could win this third issue. Uh, and there's no reason to make an argument that you might love the court to rule in favor if you're not going to win it. Uh, and so to keep the court credibility with the court, to have a chance to win on the issue, he went with the most narrow possible tightrope to convince the justices. Because he knew if he could win on this issue, then the court would not be able to dodge the question they really cared about, which is whether greenhouse gas emissions are air pollutants or not. It, it was such a surprising moment during the argument when he said this, uh, that Justice Ginsburg responded when Milky said this, Justice Ginsburg jumped in and said, wait a second, is that really what you're saying? Are you really saying that the only thing you're asking for here is for it be sent back to EPA and at EPA look at it again, and they could then give these other legitimate reasons? Is that really all you're asking for? And Milky said, that's right, Your Honor. That's that what we're asking for. I have to say that for me, in terms of, uh, of everything you've done on this case, that for me was the, the teachable moment. I mean, he didn't flinch. Justice Ginsburg says, you admit that if it goes back and they give the proper reason, they'll have given the proper reason. And it has nothing to do with the issues of climate change. It has nothing to do with the substantive issues. It simply has to do with the internal tactics of how a lawyer wins the case. Because by making that answer, he gave them the reason to go on to what he was concerned about. And to me, how it, whether that was tactically thought through ahead of time, whether he did it spontaneously, it just illustrates how in the cases of the greatest import, what we call great lawyering, purely on the issues of lawyering, how you frame, as you first said, how you make the tactical answer. Most people listening to that answer, I think, would have the same instinctive reaction that Justice Ginsburg expressed. You've come all the way here and all you're telling us is send it back so they can give the right reason. Why did you even go through this? But <laughs> as you said, it was the lawyer's instincts in framing the argument that, that permitted the case to be resolved the way it was. What I always tell my students, Howard, is the best environmental lawyers are not the best environmentalists. They're the best lawyers. Uh, first and foremost, you've got to be a really good lawyer. Uh, that's what you need. And you want a really good environmental lawyer, hire first and foremost a fabulous lawyer who cares about the environmental issues uh, in the case. Uh, and in this sense, it, you know, it, made a, it made a huge difference uh, what he had done. And, and underscore how significant this moment was, uh, if you go to the rebuttal in the argument, the very end, Milky stands up, right, to do his rebuttal. He's only got a few minutes left to go. Things are looking pretty good at this point. So, but Milky stands up for the rebuttal. And before he can get a word out, Justice Scalia, who is his major nemesis in the case, and Justice Scalia has seen what's happened. And Justice Scalia has seen that he's likely to lose on the standing issue that he cares tremendously about. And he sees that Milky has made headway on his very narrow administrative law argument. So to try to undo that, as soon as Milky stands up, before he gets a word out, Justice Scalia says, interrupts him and says, counsel, now, if we sent this case back to EPA, and EPA goes out and does the same thing, but gives different reasons, that would make you happy, would it? And he says in a very jocular way. Uh, and Milky may be tired, or maybe not realizing what Scalia has done, and Scalia was a master of argument, said, that's your, your honor, it would not make us happy. Well, as soon as he says that, right, there's the risk that he has managed through a, this sort of joking exchange with Scalia, where Scalia has masked what he's doing, conceded that they want far more than just the remand back. Yeah. Um, so Breyer immediately jumps in. Breyer spots exactly what his good friend Nino Scalia has done. So Breyer jumps in at this point and says, wait a second, counsel. I thought a moment ago, you told me the answer was, that's all what you wanted us to do. All we need to do was send it back. 
and let EPA decide again, and they could do it if they wanted to do it. Isn't that right? Um, and when he says that, Milky realizes what Scalia's done. And Milky says, that's right, Your Honor. Uh, and what's fun about that is that Breyer at that moment out Scalia Scalia. Scalia is the, was the master of doing that, of, of rescuing advocates who had been tricked, trapped or tricked by another justice into saying something Scalia didn't like. But here, Breyer did it to Scalia, and he put Milky right back on his footing. But the exchange shows you how important that administrative law issue was, and all the justices recognized and also it shows by just as an aside, one of the reasons and some people think it, it, it's not that good that it's happened, but it explains one of the reasons that it's happened for this very elite Supreme Court bar for people who regularly appear before the Supreme Court, because really knowledge of the individual justices and how they deal an oral argument and what phrases and words and what things will affect them, which only comes from the experience that you get in the Solicitor General's office or elsewhere, really gives the advocate before the court an edge that a person who doesn't have that background simply can't match at the time. And it's just one of the reasons why the specialized Supreme Court bar, I think, uh, has developed. So here we have a case, ultimately the petitioners come out with what's a great triumph. They win on standing, uh, they avoid the administrative law trap, uh, because of the way Milky handles that. And ultimately, they go on to write that, uh, you know, the EPA can decide that greenhouse gas emissions are subject to, uh, to regulation. Uh, but in your opinion, the triumph is, is created by the lawyering, not by the ideology. That's absolutely right. This was really good lawyering. But of course, we've missed part of the equation here. It wasn't just really good lawyering by the advocates, and, but, and they, which did fabulous lawyering. It was also really good lawyering done by that octogenarian Jedi master in the court. Uh, and that was Justice John Paul Stevens who wrote the opinion for the court. Uh, and one thing I really enjoyed doing in this book was trying to take the reader to both sides of the lectern. One, the advocacy by the lawyer before it, and the other, the advocacy within the chambers of the justices. Because it doesn't end, uh, the advocacy doesn't end when the chief justice bangs on the gavel or argument says the case is submitted. Uh, then the justices and their law clerks retire uh, behind the curtains, uh, and then the next stage of advocacy begins. Uh, and that is, someone's got to write an opinion of the court, uh, which gets at least five votes. Uh, and those votes are not set in stone uh, until an opinion is published. And in this case, that was no exception. It took a lot of advocacy within the chambers of the justice themselves to end up with the decision the court reached. Well, that, I thought that was one of the more interesting discussion about the chief justice is going to dissent and therefore the choice of the author or the majority opinion goes to the senior justice who's in the majority. At that point, it's John Paul Stevens. He has a tough decision to make. He can keep it and hope to hold on to Kennedy's fifth vote or get Kennedy's fifth vote. Or once Kennedy has in conference indicated his initial decision uh, on standing and, is with, and he's with the petitioners, he can give the opinion to Kennedy uh, thinking that that's more likely to lock him in and, and avoid the risk of losing his vote. And the way he handles it is why you describe Justice Stevens in this case as the 80 year old Jedi master. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Stevens, I actually did go down to, to Florida. I interviewed uh, Justice Stevens about the case and about environmental law uh, more generally uh, as well. And Stevens described uh, the challenge you had when you're in the majority and you have the opinion assignment. It's just what you said. This is a case. This was a big case. Uh, it was like the only major case of the term uh, where Justice uh, Stevens uh, had the opinion assignment in, in favor of the five justice uh, majority on for a more progressive result. The court this term, the 2006 term, mostly went conservative uh, and not more progressive. This is one of the only times that Justice Kennedy went with the more progressive justice. So Stevens really wanted to sign his opinion to himself, but he also knew that that was risky. He told me about how he had, had learned that lesson in watching Justice Brennan. Right after Justice Kennedy joined the court in the late 1980s, Justice Brennan had, had, was a senior justice of the majority for a major civil rights case called Patterson-McLean uh, case. Uh, and Kennedy had been hit the fifth vote. And Justice Brennan decided to assign the opinion to himself. And he lost Kennedy's vote. Uh, and, the, and what had been the majority became the dissent. And what became the dissent became the majority. 
And that was a lesson which Stephen said he had watched and others had watched. And so you often were tempted to give the opinion to Kennedy, because if you signed the opinion to him, you knew he'd write it in a way that, that he would sign on to. On the other hand, the cost of that is you might end up with a far narrower opinion than you wanted. And what Justice Kennedy told me, what Justice Stevens told me, excuse me, was he decided to keep it for himself and then work hard to get Kennedy's vote. Because this was one of the few cases, he said, where he didn't want to write an opinion just to the lawyers in the case or just to law professors and law students for case books. He wanted to write this case to the American people. He wanted to write in a way which would make a difference. The American people could pick it up. And he said, described to me how frustrated he was as a long-standing Republican that his own party uh, was not taking the climate change issue more seriously. So he said, I'm going to write this myself. But then he had to work hard to keep Justice Kennedy's vote. And, uh, you know, appropriately called the Jedi Master. But of course, when justices make these decisions, they're well aware that there are, though all cases are important, only a handful or maybe a little more that are genuinely historic in their area and that Massachusetts VEPA was going to be one of those. And there had to be a natural inclination to want to be the author uh, of, of such an opinion that, that had to enter into the final decision that was made. Oh, I, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely, Howard. And there's no question that, you know, when you're the senior justice of the majority, uh, the great thing is you finally get to decide yourself who writes the opinions. Uh, and there's a natural tendency to want to give yourself uh, the big opinions. Because other than that, the chief justice decides uh, who gets to do it. And you may end up with a lot of dogs to write. And when you get to be in your high 80s, as Justice Stevens one, that was at this time, you want to write the big cases. Uh, so I think it's very hard to give up on them. Yeah. So what does this lesson have? What Again, what interests me in terms of lawyering, a lot of environmental lit litigation by environmental, uh, brought by environmental litigators is in front of what we can generally call difficult courts. Uh, there's so much attention today paid to judicial appointments uh, that I may be wrong about this, but I think that some lawyers have gotten a little lazy in thinking that you just have to get a favorable judge and you'll win the case. Uh, when in fact, in the great cases, and you're in front of difficult court, the real lawyering is, how do you win a case in front of a judge that may not go into this uh, initially favorable to you? And so great lawyering becomes critical. So what lessons, and you've described, you've handled difficult cases in circuits and other cases as well. In dealing with a difficult case, what lessons are there to be learned from how Mass for EPA was handled? Well, I think the first one, the one I'm trying to stress at the outset, is find the way to frame the case to the court you have, not the court you want. So look at the judges or justices who will be deciding your case and think whether there's a way you can frame the case in a way that will get them to rule in, fa in your favor. Uh, so if the justices or justices care about plain text, uh, then find a way to make the case about plain text uh, and plain meaning. Now, this is what I did and my, the whole team did in a case years ago called the Environmental Defense Fund, sorry, City of Chicago versus Environmental Defense Fund, a hazardous waste case. Uh, before the Supreme Court. And we determined the real best way to argue this case was to argue the case in terms of a plain text meaning uh, and argue against legislative history. Because uh, that was a more conservative way of arguing, but that's who we needed to win the case. Uh, and we won the case. And Justice Scalia wrote the opinion uh, in favor of the Environmental Defense Fund and that significant ruling uh, in the mid-1990s about the extent and meaning of the Resource Conservation Recovery Act. Just a few years ago, I had a regulatory takings case before the court, a case called Murphy, Wisconsin. Um, and to win that case, uh, not surprisingly, Justice Kennedy was going to be the determinative vote uh, in the case. So if you go to my beginning of my oral argument in the case, and certainly was there in our briefs, the theme we struck was a federalism theme uh, and about how the arguments being done by the property rights advocates in this case would basically cause a massive problem for state and local governments across the country, many of whom exactly the same kind uh, of zoning ordinances and grandfather clauses as were being challenged in, the, in this case before the court. That was the way to pitch the case, try to pitch the case to make the court think about the case the way you want it. And you can see during the oral argument, Justice Kennedy picked up on that uh, and he challenged the other side on it and he ended up writing the opinion for the court. 
But, but just as importantly as trying to find a way to frame the case to see if there's some way you can win it, that could be arguing narrowly as in Massachusetts, arguing plain text or federalism uh, in other cases. It's also the awareness that just because you think you are entitled to win, just because you believe the law is on your side, you have to look at the court you've got. And sometimes you decide you're going to lose this case. What really good lawyers know is when they're going to lose, not just how to win, but sometimes they're not going to win. That's a tough decision to make. It's a tough thing to tell your client uh, in this case. I've been involved in cases like that as well. I remember a case I had years ago before the justices called uh, the Tau Regional Planning, uh, Tau, no, sorry, it was SUDEM, the Tau Regional Planning Agency, a regulatory takings case the court took after my client, the Tower Regional Planning Agency, had won in the lower court. I looked at the case. I looked at the court's grant. I looked at the justices. I went to my client and I said, now we're going to lose this case. Uh, this is not a case we're going to win in front of the United States Supreme Court. How about if we lose it this way? The court took it to rule against us in this very broad, sweeping, harmful way. What if we could get them instead, by framing the case, to have them rule against us in this other narrow way. And my client said, that'd be fine. We have no problem with that. That will just do us any damage at all. So my job as the advocate in writing the brief, doing the argument, was to lose that way and not to lose the big way. But what uh, you're talking about in terms of framing is so interesting. It's, it's part of a universal rule of persuasion. The person who frames the question, if you can state the question if you're the one stating the question, you usually can win the argument. And, and what, how the question is stated is so critical. And therefore, even sometimes when the court issues, uh, initiate, it grants a hearing on something and says, we're doing it on this issue, it often can be done to say, you know, the court has stated this issue is X, but beneath issue X is really right. the issue of Y. Because the single most persuasive thing, those of us who spent our lives in persuasion, come to realize is if you've got the power to, to, to state the question, you're very likely going to win the argument. And right. this is uh, just a great example of it in terms of what you're talking about. But what's fun about this is this is one where you're not trying to win. Yeah. You're trying to win by losing. So you're actually trying to distract the court from a way that you think they might rule against you that would do damage uh, yeah. in the case. Uh, and I can tell you in, in that case, uh, I stood up before I even, this is the only case I argued for the United States Supreme Court, that before I got to the lectern, I, it only takes about a second and a half to go from your seat in the Supreme Court to the lectern and say, Mr. Ch Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Before I got there, Chief Justice Rehnquist was so mad at what we were arguing that he interrupted me before I got my first words out uh, to start you know, banging on me. My job was to get hit back and forth like a punching bag on this issue to make sure we lost on it. Uh, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Justice Stevens during the argument, at uh, one point said out loud, now if we ruled against you on this, uh, that wouldn't basically cause much harm, would it? Uh, and the United States was up arguing at that point, they adopted the same strategy, said that's right, and he nodded. Uh, we lost the case exactly the way we wanted to. Justice Souter wrote the opinion for the court, ruling against us on this very narrow ground. Justice Scalia wrote a separate concurring opinion, furious, right? They hadn't reached the broader issue, which the court 26 years later has still not reached happily. I so love it's it. really about framing. We're talking about this in the context, and we'll continue in terms of climate change litigation. But climate change litigation, widely reported, is one of the major news stories of the day. But there are others. The Daily Journal covers a great many things. Let's take another break to hear about some of the other stories that the Daily Journal is currently covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of March 15th. Long-delayed opinions have been coming out of the 3rd District Court of Appeal quickly after complaints that a large amount of cases piled up over the past six years. Appellate attorney John Eisenberg, who filed a complaint with the Commission on Judicial Performance, said the progress is good, but ultimately cases should be transferred to other courts. Eisenberg urged California Chief Justice Tani Cantil Sakaui to transfer some of the backlog out of the overburdened 3rd District to prevent further delays, but the Supreme Court denied his request this week. A spokesperson for the 3rd District told the Daily Journal by email that the court delivered opinions at the highest rate of any appellate court in recent years. 
A federal judge ordered body cameras and fixed surveillance cameras installed in five prison facilities to better investigate staff misconduct. Judge Claudia Wilkin issued the order after finding credible claims of inmates being beaten, restrained, and pepper sprayed. Wilkin is presiding over a class action filed in 1994 by a group of disabled inmates who said prison officials did not provide reasonable accommodations in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. A spokesperson for the Department of Corrections said the agency has made efforts to improve conditions. Though the department opposed surveillance cameras anywhere other than where the most vulnerable inmates are held, the judge disagreed. She said cameras are likely to help during investigations of misconduct. Federal prosecutors in Los Angeles accused Michael Avenatti's lawyer of plagiarizing a motion written by a lawyer for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. U.S. Attorney Brett Sagel said the defense motion accusing the government of withholding evidence is lifted word for word from a government misconduct motion filed in the District of Columbia in 2019. H. Dean Stewart, who was defending Avenatti, said the claim was, quote, ridiculous and petty, end quote, and he said the government is using it as a distraction. Plagiarism of this degree could be regarded by a judge as misconduct or a breach of ethics, but it's unclear right now if any disciplinary action will be taken. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from the break. And of course, all this is in the context as well of huge amounts of climate change litigation now, both following Massachusetts EPA and other things. There are hundreds of cases in a whole variety of areas uh, dealing with climate change from cases involving what has to be disclosed in documents with the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, to issues involving public nuisance. Uh, the range of issues that has been brought up is, a, and I know there are websites that track this, there are literally hundreds if not thousands of current state and federal cases in which at some point climate change uh, is invoked. What do you think are the key issues, the key cases now uh, that will, that will uh, have an impact on how, how the climate change issues are dealt with. Well, I think, I mean, right now, the, the case which I'll be watching uh, will not come up for a while. Uh, the case I'm worried about might come up more quickly. The case I'll be watching will be uh, whatever the Biden administration does um, in response uh, on, the, on what's called the Clean Power Plan. Uh, and that is an effort by the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, one of the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And what's fascinating about this is on January 19th, the, the day before the inauguration, the D.C. Circuit struck down the Trump administration's repeal of the Clean Power Plan and further struck down its replacement plan, the Affordable Clean Energy Plan. It was a huge loss for the Trump administration, and it potentially resurrected the Obama administration's clean power plant. So what in response to that did the Biden administration do? And this shows you strategy. They immediately announced that they were not going to resurrect the clean power plan, that they were going to do a whole new plan uh, instead. Why did they do that? Because they don't want this case to go before the United States Supreme Court, even though the, the, this administration probably favors the result of that ruling, and all the states who won that case, environmental groups, loved that ruling in the American Lung case by the D.C. Circuit, because they worried that they might lose that case in front of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, so they basically are killing the case very effectively by saying, we're not going to resurrect the clean power plan. We think it's time to develop a new plan now and not go back to the old plan. That can be very effective in persuading the Supreme Court not to take the case. If industry says, we want the case to go up to the Supreme Court, because they can say it's not really a live issue anymore because we're abandoning uh, both of those things. Uh, and instead, what they're doing is they want to come up with a new plan, which they think they can make more defensible before what is now more conservative Supreme Court than they had when they did the Clean Power Plan. When they did the Clean Power Plan, right, Justice Kennedy was, as he had long been, the decisive vote. He's no longer there. Yep. And the Biden administration knows that. They know instead, right, they have three more conservative justices on the court, uh, Justice Barrett, uh, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. So they're going to try to come up with a plan which they think can survive this court's review. That's smart, Lori. And, and the that's other, the case I'll be watching for. And there's, the other case I think you're referring to coming along is the Juliana case uh, in, the, in the Ninth Circuit, 
which the Ninth Circuit just rejected uh, the the motion to hold an in-bank hearing, I think, a few weeks ago. So the decision now is whether the petitioners there will seek cert in the U.S. Supreme Court. Give us a quick summary of Juliana, because I think a lot of people are looking at that very closely. Yeah, so the Juliana case was uh, brought uh, by a group called Our Children's Trust um, in the Pacific Northwest. And they launched this case in October 2015 against the, again, again, Obama administration and renewed it with even greater vigor for obvious reasons against the Trump administration. And what their complaint in this case sought was to establish that there is a federal constitutional right under the due process clause of a right to a sustainable client uh, capable of, of supporting uh, human life. So a constitutional right um, uh, to prevent climate change. And they, their remedy was a national remedial plan, judicially enforceable, to basically force the federal government uh, to bring down greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. This was not a lawsuit that they brought against industry. It's a lawsuit they brought exclusively against the federal government uh, for taking actions which had promoted greenhouse gas emissions and, and fossil fuel combustion over decades uh, and for failing to take actions to prevent it. So it was, a, let's say, a, at least a very ambitious piece of litigation. They actually uh, successfully persuaded a federal district court to allow them to survive motion to dismiss, the court ruling there is such a right under the constitutional state of a client, uh, climate. Uh, but then ultimately, after a lot of procedural shenanigans, the Ninth Circuit uh, reversed on the ground that they lacked standing in the case. Uh, they did, court Ninth Circuit didn't reach the question whether it's a constitutional right or not, they said you lack standing in light of the scope of your national remedial plan request. We don't think such a plan uh, is susceptible to judicial redress. Therefore, you fail one of the three prongs of Article Three standing. Uh, and, now, standing I, and though framed as standing, the, the, the part of standing that it addressed in a different kind of way than standing issues in Mass for EPA was the addressability issue exactly. where there was a remedy that could ad that could address the issue that was raised. Right. And they used the ambition of the remedy of the Juliana plaintiffs against them to say, you've asked for such an ambitious remedy. We don't think courts can do that. Uh, we don't think courts can actually order the federal government to accomplish that. Therefore, since we think courts can't, we think you lack Article three standing. Uh, now, after that opinion came down and after just a couple months ago, right, the Ninth Circuit denied re-hearing on Bonk, the working assumption from everything that Juliana plaintiffs had said was that they would seek immediate Supreme Court review. Uh, it's now apparent just about a week or so ago that they're not going to do that, uh, that instead what they're seeking to do is amend their complaint, uh, to amend their complaint and make a different, lesser kind of request for remedy, uh, focus more on declaratory relief and not to necessarily have their complaint turn on the request for a national remedial plan. Uh, now that's smart lawyering. Uh, they're looking at the United States Supreme Court uh, and they're realizing that with this court, uh, the can of this court uh, saying that they have the right to have federal courts order a national remedial plan uh, to order the federal government to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the country with all the agencies, uh, that's not gonna happen. Uh, so they're seeking to amend their complaint to see if they come up with a new way uh, to have a remedy, which they th might think is more judicially palpable uh, and viable uh, than what they were doing before. Again, this is I think they were smart to do that. Um, I think they would have lost and lost big. Uh, and now we'll have to see how they try to repitch the case. And it'll raise a very interesting issue of procedural remedies in whether if, if, uh, if the remedy that would be granted as a result of the declaration still contains issues of addressability, whether asking for the declaration that that remedy should be granted avoids the, the technical issue. That's not going to be an easy one to overcome. Right. Yeah, that's the tightrope, right? If they ask for too little, then someone will say, what's that going to do? Where's the, how does that redress your, your harm? Uh, if they ask for too much, they'll say you're asking for more than we can possibly give. Uh, the question is whether there's some way they can thread that needle. Professor Lazarus, we have been talking about what is really one of the critical issues of litigation of law policy in the United States today, climate change litigation going back to the to the origins of so much of this in Massachusetts versus EPA. Uh, you have been a leader in many ways. You brought together the academy 
uh, and practitioners in ways that often does not happen. Uh, you have trained a couple of generations now uh, of environmental litigators as one of your most significant uh, accomplishments. And I want to say you're one of the few people, there are, there are others, I don't want to say few is only a handful, but one of those who really have combined scholarship, teaching, and acting as a lawyer in court uh, in ways that I think help the entire profession regardless of, of one's view of the merits of any particular case, because great lawyering is what is at the center of legal practice. And your emphasis on teaching and giving an example of great lawyering has been a model for the profession. We're deeply honored that you've joined us for this hour. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we look forward to following so many of the issues that you've described. Thanks, Howard, for your very kind and overly kind words. It's been a pleasure visiting with you today.